finally a day cold enough in Dothan to actually have a cup of coffee on Sunday morning and not feel weird about it, right? <laughs> I don't care. I love coffee. I'll have it even when it's hot. All right, so I want to I preach a message. This has uh, been on my heart for a little while. I want to preach a message this morning called Tension. And uh, I know that's kind of a weird way to start the new year, but bear with me. Um, we'll talk a little bit about vision and kind of what we're going into. Karen did such a, phen- a phenomenal job during worship of just reminding us that we're not just coming out of a year, but we're coming out of a decade. And how often, as she was saying before, I just love that, how often we define ourselves by a decade, right? I'm a child of the 80s. I had a mullet, in case anybody's wondering. If you'd like to show, see the picture, I will show it to you for a nominal fee. <laughs> um, I actually had a small mullet when I got married, um, but I had enough sense to, you know, tone it down because I went into the military right after that and uh, they didn't like long hair. I'd heard stories from my uh, uncles when they went in in the 60s with long hair and we uh, had this one guy, this is for free by the way, and I'll get into my messages in a second. <laughs> but I went in the military and so, you know, it was the Air Force, so it's not like real hard, right? You know, so that Air Force, everybody jokes, if you've been in the military, um, they always make fun of us in the Air Force because, you know, you, when you uh, when you go into the field, you get a hotel room. That's how we do it, right? <laughs> the other guys live in the woods or whatever. So anyway, we go into basic training, and our basic training was much shorter than most military, but it's a head game. It was not so much physical. They did that, but it was more of a head game. It was about, you know, messing with your head. And so <laughs> it took us to get the haircut. So the first first thing that happens is you get these new clothes, right? And uh, And they dress you all the same because the whole idea is to take away your individuality and build you up as a team. You know, that's kind of the idea. So they, they have a very short amount of time to do it, and so they, they're really good at it. So they take us, before we even get our uniform, they take us to cut our hair the very next morning. We've been up most of the night, woke us up at like 4 o'clock in the morning. We're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. We go to get our hair cut, and we stand in line. They take the first guy to the very front. He had this massive afro. It was a white guy, actually, with an afro. He had a huge afro. So it was coming out of the 80s. It was big hair day. They sit him down in the chair, and he's kind of being a little snarky with them. And so they teach us very quickly. You don't get snarky with the military, right? So they take this guy, sit him down in the, in the chair, and the guy shaves right down the middle of his head, like right down the center, just a airstrip, just like this, you know, to remind us we're in the Air Force, and then had him stand in front of the line and direct the line for the all of the rest of us. Talk about intimidating, man. I was like, that's wrong, but somehow I enjoy it. I don't know why. So, <laughs> anyway, that's for free. So it has nothing to do with my message outside of the, you know, we always find ourselves in tension regardless of what we're doing. Uh, basic training, it was a whole lot of tension between an old way of thinking and a new way of thinking going into the military. We find this in everything. We find it especially in, in Christ. When you become a believer, the Bible says that the old things are supposed to pass away, and behold, there are new things, right? The whole idea behind all of this is there's an old way of thinking, not just an old way of life and patterns and behaviors and all that. That's, that stuff is true. That's why grace is so powerful, is when we come into Christ, the first thing that happens is we get a brand new heart, but we don't get a brand new brain right? It's not the Wizard of Oz. That's not how it works. So we get a new heart, but we don't get a new mind. And so the Bible says now it's up to you as a disciple to transform your mind by the renewing of God's Word. In other words, it's not just by the Bible. That's what most people think that says. But it means by everything that God is talking to you. So He speaks to us through His through the Scripture, and that's the foundation stone He's not going to go off of that, right? So you need to know your Bible. You need to be biblically literate if you're going to think a new way. But at some point, what begins to happen is 
God begins to remind you, and it gets. It, and the, the further you go along, the more and more subtle it actually gets, and the more nuanced it becomes. But the more mature, and eventually the more impact you have in your life, the greater peace you, you have, the greater satisfaction, more joy in your life. Everything is, when it comes to the kingdom, everything is always more, right? It's always, there's always more available to you in God. You, you think you have gone as deep or as far with the Lord as you can. You're like, this can't get any better. I promise you it can. And it continues to do that until one day it culminates in, the Bible says, you will be, no, you will know as you have been known. And what God is saying is, I know you fully, completely. There's no secrets about who you are, not the ones you try to keep. You can't even keep secrets that you don't know are secrets from yourself. You know what I'm saying? There are things about yourself you haven't discovered yet, believe it or not, even at your age, right? And even those things, God knows them. The Bible says he's numbered the hairs on your head. He knows you intimately in every way. And he sees you, especially in this new nature, he sees you now through the lens of righteousness and good, even though maybe your behavior is not quite there yet. We all get this. These are foundational, fundamental aspects of what it means to be a believer. As a matter of fact, as we get into the new year, I'm going to be preaching into what it means to be a mature believer and begin to move into this new decade with a new understanding about who God's called us to be as a family in, in this church, a family on mission, a family of mature believers who walk in the fullness of God in every form and every fashion. Doesn't mean we're not going to receive challenges like we have in the past. It just means that if there's more of us who are walking in maturity, there's greater, there's a greater impact available to us and a greater inheritance, not just in us, but also through us. So it's coming, right? It's coming. And so one of those things, the things I'm going to talk about is how Paul made the statement at one point where he said, when I was a child, I, I did childish things, right? Um, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. See, this is a thing about maturity that, that's so challenging. One reason why it's so tough sometimes in church, I don't know many people who haven't been hurt at some point in church. And part of the reason for that is we, when we come to church, we get a new heart, we experience God, and we think that all of his kids are like him. But they're not always like him. Now, ultimately, they will be, right? We get that. But in the beginning, you got little kids, and you got middle kids, and you got older kids, and you have all the problems that kids have with one another. And the design that God's created is, as we all come to maturity, they're fathers and mothers, supposed to be fathers and mothers in our midst, who speak into the lives of children who then become fathers and mothers. The whole idea is to bring us through into maturity, to put away childish things. But this is the interesting thing, is that He won't do it for you. You actually have to do it. You actually have to say, you know what, this thing, this thing I've been dealing with, that's why Karen went after it so strong in worship, this thing that I've been dealing with about fear, I think it's time I put that away. Right? And so it's not like, I'll do it with all my strength and all of my will and somehow that'll work. Well, I bet you've tried that, right? How's that working out for you? The answer is probably not so good, right? So maybe there's another way. Maybe what the Bible says is true about the way you think and the way he thinks being two different ways of thinking. Right? He says in one place in the Old Testament, he says, I am altogether not like you. Like we feel like, well, that's kind of insulting. Yes, it is. <laughs> in the sense that we are finite and he is infinite, right? We are the created. He is the creator. There, there's, a, it's not just a small difference in how we think, but a massive difference in how we think. And the joy is that when God puts his nature in you, then also you can begin to take on his mind. And that's what the Bible talks about where it says, where it says, have this mind in you, right? Have Christ's mind in you. So you have his, you have a new heart, 
But the challenge in growing up and becoming who God called you to be fully is for you to begin to make decisions about putting things away. Now, here's how you know if you're dealing with this as, an, as a child, right, a younger child. And again, not a bad thing, right? When a child is a child, ch- children do what children do. That's why Paul said, when I, was a, when I was a child, I did childish things. Duh, right? So he was okay in his development at that stage of his development. But he said, when I became a man, in Jewish tradition, we turned 13, they say, you know what? You're no longer a, a child, you're a man. You need to begin to walk into the fullness of who you are as, as a fully formed adult with all the privileges, all the inheritance that comes to you, and all the responsibilities. So he comes, in, when you come into that place of a, man, of a man or maturity, what happens is all of a sudden you get responsibility that you didn't have before, right? But what you learn is that God never just gives you responsibility. Never does that. He always gives you responsibility with the commensurate authority to carry out that responsibility. So if he says, hey, I'm commanding you or I'm challenging you or I'm telling you to do something in Scripture, when he tells us that, he says, put away all malice, right? So if, if you're a believer and you're angry with someone, put it away. <laughs> Stop playing with that. That thing is dangerous. You'll shoot your eye out with it, right? <laughs> so put it away. And that's why the Bible says those things like that. It sounds like a command, but what, what it really is is what the Bible calls an imperative or what, what um, understanding Scripture and how the Greek is written, it's an imperative. It means because you have this, you can do this. Every place you see imperatives in the Bible where God says, put away malice, put away, you know, uh, uh, stop doing sexual misconduct, all these different things that he says to put away, every time he says that, either preceding or, or, or either before or after, there's something about the power to do what he's asking you to do. So, and it almost always starts with you're in Christ, right? So he reminds you once again, if you're trying to do this on your own strength, please stop that. It is not working. And all it's going to do is just drive you crazy, right? So don't, don't do it. Learn how God says for you to make change in your life. What does transformation look like in your life? And so there's this tension in church world. We, we always see there's this attention of you have some, you have mature believers. Hopefully you have a lot of mature believers and then you have some broken people who come in and, and really they're at all stages of that continuum from very, very broken, brand new in Christ. You know, some people are come to, to, to faith in Christ and their lives are basically okay in terms of, you know, they've learned certain skill sets. They've been graced with an education, maybe a decent family and the list goes on and on. And they're not super broken. They're broken. They were, Evil, Bible says before, you know, everybody has, has missed the mark. We all get that. But some people are more broken than others based on your, your history, especially your family of record. You came from a broken family, all kinds of busted. You come to this place. You come into the kingdom at a disadvantage already, right? You actually have to learn what it means to be human before you learn what it means to be Christian, right? We had, we had that in Tyler, Texas. We had a class. Um, we called it internally. We called it human being 101. We literally did. When we created it, we're like, how do we define this so we all know exactly what it is we're trying to do? Because this is really frightening, what we're actually saying we need to do. And so somebody came up with that term. It's human being, human being 101. And, and what we called it publicly was life skills 101. <laughs> and, and what tur- it turned out that we were dealing with some people from the street who were so broken that they literally had no idea just how to be a child, let alone grow into an adult. So there's a tension in the church with mature believers, right? Moms and dads, um, fathers and, and mothers in, in the kingdom, mature believers who are there. They've, they've overcome some things. 
they've not just had a new heart, but they've transformed their mind and they're walking in the fullness of maturity. They're not perfect. That's not what I'm saying. But they're obviously very mature and they're recognizable. They're not hard to see. One reason they're recognizable is it's long-term success. Not they did well for a season, blew up and then blew out. That's not how it works. But long-term, they've been on a steady rise of maturity and seeing, and, and the enemy's attacked the whole time and he's never gotten one over on them because they remember I've overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony. What's the word of my testimony? I don't do this. Jesus did it for me. But I do need to learn how he's thinking so I can think the same way. So we have this tension. And in that tension, we run into problems. Are we of church, of broken and and, and immature people? I mean, are we evangelistic? Are we missional? Are we reaching out? Yes. Are we a a church of believers who are mature, who who are changing the atmosphere of any place that they, they, whether it's they work or they go to school or they live in their community, any place you walk in the door as a mature believer, believer, you get to change the temperature in that room. This is another way you know. Are you changed by the atmosphere is, it, is, it, is this how you know when you begin to move into maturity? Does the atmosphere or word or circumstance change how you feel about who you are and who God is? Or do you change the atmosphere when those circumstances come? And you know when it comes. And I, I've done this so many times where I look back and I go, i got to get faster at that, right? Because my initial reaction sometimes would be going, oh, ah, you know, like E.T., ah, running down the road, right? But, but that's because often the shock comes, right? That, that, that challenge us. And Peter says this, I'm going to get to this in just a second, but Peter talks about don't be surprised by the fiery trials that come upon you. Now, he, he pins that at a time when Nero, the, the, um, not too long after that, Nero is going to take Christians, he's going to cover them in tar, and he's going to light his gardens with them. So he's setting them on fire and using burning bodies to light his garden. Now that's pretty twisted, right? He writes that knowing this is coming. Peter himself, the Bible says, was flipped upside down and hung on a cross upside down. And he actually chose that way rather than being hung on a cross the right way because he said, I am not worthy. This is church history, not the Bible. I am not worthy to die like my Lord. I don't know if he said that or not. All I know is he was willing to pay the price, right? And and it's, and it comes from he made the decision. He didn't make the decision on that day whether he was going to that cross or not. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about Peter. He didn't make the decision. Eleven out of the twelve disciples that we know of were martyred. They were killed for their faith. One of them, John, died a natural death, but not because they didn't try. Church history says that they actually put him in a vat of oil and tried to boil him alive in a vat of oil, and he wouldn't cook. Talk about changing the temperature around you, right? (laughs) So it wasn't for their lack of trying, so they just put him on an island, the Isle of Patmos, so they could take away his influence. How powerful are you that the Roman government says, we, we tried our best to kill this guy. He won't die. So the best we can hope for is put him on an island and get him away from everybody so he stops changing the world. The only problem is they left him with a pen and a piece of paper and the word got out anyway, right? That's changing the atmosphere. That's what God's called us to. It's not that it's not without suffering. We live in a world, we've shared this, we live in a world that's broken and busted. We get it. But Jesus says, because he's overcome the world, you have too. But are you acting like it? Or is the world overcoming you? So we live in a tension, this tension in this world of the kingdom come, the kingdom not yet. This is a, a famous scripture. Everybody knows this. this is Proverbs twenty nine eighteen about vision. Um, this is actually the Holcomb 
uh, Bible translation is really interesting. It says it this way. Without revelation, people run wild. Uh, you heard it in the King James. is without, re- without vision, people perish. But this actually talks about how they perish. It says without revelation or vision, people run wild, but one who listens to instruction will be happy. <laughs> so here's the picture. The picture of going into this new year and this new decade Laying some things aside. The Bible says for you personally, lay aside the sin that so easily besets you. And, and you know what that sin is, and it's probably not the one that easily besets me. Maybe it's the same, I don't know. But a lot of you guys, I, you, you say, I struggle with this. I know. I have no idea what you're talking about because I don't struggle with your sin. The tendency for that, I struggle with something else. But all of a sudden, there's something that the enemy finds a way to try to weasel himself into our life, and we have to make a decision what we're going to do about that. And grace, when grace comes, grace overwhelms every ability of the enemy to keep you from becoming mature. Let me give you an example. We had a guy, and uh, this is in Longview, Texas. We were associate pastors of a church there. Our, our primary role was youth pastor and worship. We did a bunch of different things, children's ministry sometimes as well. But we were leading youth ministry. And we had a couple of college-age leaders who were helping us. And one guy comes in. He'd been to Bible school. He was a great guy, loved the Lord, and he comes in, he's super downcast, and he says to me, man, I have to step out, I have to step out of youth ministry, and I said, why? I said, something happened, he goes, yeah, he goes, man, I, I don't know how to say this, he goes, but I, this is before pornography was so easily seen, by the way, so it makes a lot more sense if you were back then, he goes, I'm just struggling with pornography, and I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, man, he said, I, I, it's, I don't know what to do, but I know I need to step aside, I said, why? He said, because, uh, you know, I should not be doing that. He goes, there are young girls in, in, uh, in the youth ministry. And he goes, and I don't want to accidentally do something, you know, or lean into. I said, you planning on doing that? He's like, well, no. <laughs> I said, are you, are you sitting in the services with us and, and dreaming about our, our young girls naked? He's like, no. I mean, he's like super offended that I would even think that. I said, so what's going on? And he tells me, he said, you know, from time to time I have this struggle. And he said, and then I, I end up looking at pornography. And, and I said, and what happens when you do? He, he said, I feel horrible. He goes, the, the drive puts me there. And then I, I do it. And I think it's going to, you know, for what my body and my, my everything about me says, this is going to fulfill you. And then I do it. And then I look at it. And I, and I, and I feel horrible. It's terrible. And I said, hallelujah. And he's like, what? <laughs> I said, that tells me you're a believer, man. It tells me that you are struggling against sin, not that sin has overtaken you. Now, if you'd come in and you said, you know what, I, this is totally taken over my life. I'm so addicted, I can't do anything else. I, I'm not even showing up at my job. I'm like, you have a problem and you definitely need to step away from ministry. But I said, why don't you do this? Why don't you take just a little while and step away and let's talk about this and let's see what God does. This guy overcame that very, very quickly. But here's what I challenged him with, and I found out this, this later. If you're a man in here right now, just so you know, and you want to know whether you struggle with pornography, whether, whether lust is going to be an issue, there's a medical test you can take where you just take these two fingers and put it right here. And if there's a pulse, you're going to struggle with pornography. Welcome to living in the tension of being in a fallen world and struggling and pushing back against sin. Maybe your issue is gossip. Whatever you're struggling in, the Bible, this is what the Bible says. Lay aside the sin that so easily besets you. It keeps grabbing hold of you. What's he saying? He's saying there's a tension that you've been living in and somewhere along the line you've been lied to and said this thing has you. But one of the ways it has you is because you're, you're not talking about it. 
you're not, you're not bringing it to the Lord. You're not, you're not having a conversation with Him about why the sin is so easily besetting you because you've been messed up for so long under legalism. It says that you can't even, you can't even acknowledge that you have any sin in your life. Because then if you do, then maybe you're not a great Christian. Listen, just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're not going to sin. Any more than just because you're not a believer doesn't mean you're going to do righteous acts. And under grace, understanding grace says, it doesn't matter how many righteous acts I do, those righteous acts will never lead to my righteousness. Because all it takes is to break one of them and my righteousness goes away. It's lost forever. Right? But the, the good news is when Jesus came and He died on the cross, he, he didn't just take away our sins, although He did, but He gave us, I talked about this last week, He gave us the gift of righteousness and put it in our lives so now when God looks at you, He's not looking you at you as void of sin without righteousness. He's looking at you as void of sin with righteousness. Not found in the law, not found on your own, but found in Christ as a gift to you. So what does that mean? That means as a child, you come into the household of faith. And the father says, I recognize you're a baby. It's not like I'm stupid, right? And you're going to need your nappy changed. This is just going to be how it is. And if you recognize that in church, there are going to be times in our church when young, broken people who come to know Christ are going to need their nappy changed. So change their diaper. Let's change their diaper. And it's going to stink it's going to be uncomfortable and unpleasant. It's not something we enjoy doing. But if you have to learn how to do it. And, and don't get it all over you while you're changing the nappy. Right? There's an idea. Here's a good practical illustration. You can separate yourself from it. But you never look at the baby. Where do you think the phrase came throughout the baby with the bathwater? It's like, oh, I was washing the baby. as long. Oh, the baby's dirty. Ah, let's get rid of the baby. Right? Is that what we do? Of course not. There's literally a saying as to why we don't do it. But so often as Christians, some Christians sins and we look at them and go, there's no hope for you. Well, it turns out there is. Always has been, always will be. Some of you guys have heard of a guy named Paul Cain. He died a couple years ago. He was a well-known prophetic minister in the Vineyard Movement and others. Um, he was doing incredibly well. He started out in the 50s, 40s, and 50s as an evangelist. At one point, he had 10, 15, 20,000 people showing up for his meetings. He would call out people's, um, call, call out people's addresses. God would liver, literally give him his, the address of people's uh, homes so he could also remind them that God wanted to heal them. And he would pray for their, their healing, and they would be healed supernaturally. And it was just signs and wonders followed this guy everywhere he went. One time, he was driving in a car in, in, in somewhere in middle California, and he said, I heard the Lord say, I want you to pull over. This before had cell phones. I want you to pull over and I want you to dial a telephone number that I'm giving you. And when the person answers, it's going to be a hospital, a mental institution. You're going to ask for this person by name. They're going to get them on the phone. And when you do, you tell them, I'm coming soon to you and you're going to be set free. He's like, okay, sure. So he pulls off the side of the road. He dials the number that he... Either he made it up in his head or God gave it to him, one of the two. He dials the number, he calls, it's a mental institution, just like the Lord said. He asks for the person by name, they bring him, and he says, I, I don't know if you can even understand me, but I want you to know that I'm coming, and when I do, you're going to be set free. Because Jesus has done something. He's, he said, then I hung up the phone, and I was like, now what? <laughs> right? Big promises, Lord, now what? And so he goes, and in, in, in the next place that he's at, 
It turns out that one of the guys in the church, that was his wife in the mental institution. He discovers this. He goes through the process. He ends up getting into visitor, even though he's not supposed to be. He goes and he sits down with her. She's so drugged up. She can't even hear. She can't even hear her own name, let alone his. And he says to her, he said, I told you I would come. He said, I'm going to lay my hands on you. I'm going to pray for you. God's going to set you free. And in three days, you're going to be out of this institution and back with your family. That's pretty bold, don't you think? Now, I'm not willing to say something like that unless I'm pretty sure it's Jesus, right? He says that, walks out the door. Now, what are you going to (laughs) do? Right? Living in the tension of the kingdom come, but not yet. We're always in tension in the kingdom, whether it's mature or immature, where it's brokenness and, and maturity, living, trying to live together in the same place, right? And it comes to this thing, and then the story comes out, she, they, for whatever reason, decided to take her off the drugs. It just so happened to occur at the same time. She came into her right mind, did an interview with the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist was absolutely convinced. And if you know anything about that, it doesn't normally happen that way. And he said, I see no reason to keep you. And within three days, she was home with her family. How do you think those church services went after that lady came home? So what happened? Did he know? Did he just follow me? Did he get on a mission and go, you know what? There's a lady in a, I, I, I want to rescue people from mental institutions. And I think the power of God is going to let me do that. Listen, if that's, if God calls you to that, go for it. Cause it, it'll happen. I promise you. But what I'm saying is that he was willing to hear the voice of God and live in the tension of I'm hearing God say something that without him doing it is absolutely impossible. So he had to trust him at every single stage of the game until it eventually happened. Now, it's a testimony. It's written down in a book. People celebrate. Tons of people came to know Jesus because of it. They recognized how valid he is and who he is and what he's done. And God wants to do that here as well on a regular basis. Those kind of things still happen. And we're still asking, Lord, do those things again afresh and anew. As we go into this new season, this new decade, God, show yourself strong so there's no doubt that you're real. Enough of the intellectual ascent. That's fine. It's wonderful. God doesn't have a problem with your brain. Your brain is just really small. Some of you guys want to speak for yourself, Dave, right? I'm just saying in comparison to God, it's really small. So at some point, to live in the tension, you have to learn to trust the voice of God. So here's a caveat to that story. Paul came just a, a few years, probably right before the early 2000s, Um, it's discovered that he was having a homosexual affair with someone and that he was a drunkard and on regular occasions would find himself outside and be drunk. And so three leaders who had been ministering with him for years had seen some of the signs but had never said anything, right? They weren't living in this tension well. They should have called him out on it, especially personally, right? They never did. Now this happens. It gets out, becomes public. They feel the need, obviously, to go and approach him and talk to him about it. Sit down with him and say, hey, listen, we want to help you, but you need to step down because you're, you're still acting as if everything's okay. And, and we get it. Grace is there, but you also have to restore wholeness to your life so that you're not messing with God's people the way you're doing because it's, it's making a mess. And he said, none of this is true. It's not true. And he denied it completely. And then three or four days later, under I guess he, he'd finally gotten to the point where he could hear God. He, he comes out publicly on his, on his website and he says, these things are true. These accusations are true. There's a brother who's willing to sit down with me and a church leadership team who's willing to sit down with me and walk me through this. So why am I telling you the story? If you didn't know that story before, when I told you how amazing Paul Cain was, you would have seen him as Jesus, wouldn't you? You did, actually. 
You're like, he's doing things powerfully in the name of Christ. How amazing is that? And then as a believer, as a fully mature believer, as a man who's been doing ministry, who's preached to thousands and thousands of people, finds himself in sin. Why? Because at some point in his life, he was unwilling to lay aside the sin that so easily besets him. So that tension, listen to me, is not ever going to go away. People ask me, what do you do? You're helping people, if you believe homosexuality is a sin, how do you deal with that? Because the world says, you know, if you're born this way, well, are you or aren't you? Because now the world is saying, and the whole transgender thing that's going on in our, in our public forum nowadays, that gender is actually fluid. And you can be a guy today and a girl tomorrow and something altogether different the day after, right? So which is it? Are the transgender people right in their sexuality? Or are the homosexuals right in their sexuality? Or are the cisgen white males right? And the answer to all those questions is, why are you defining yourself by your sexuality when that is just a small portion of who God made you to be? Your focus is all wrong, for goodness sake. So let's change the conversation and go, maybe there's more to your life than whether you're attracted to men or women. Maybe there's more to your life. Maybe the, the, the problems that you're running into your life, whether it's that one or you or you are angry all the time, or you're fearful, or you find yourself prideful, whatever sin you find yourself in this tension, maybe, maybe, just maybe, it has nothing to do with right and wrong, has everything to do with life and death, the way Jesus said. That if you want to find life, if you want to find wholeness and fullness, and be everything that God called you to be, God made me a man in a marriage with a woman. And so, so I look at that and go, Lord, there's probably something about that that you did on purpose. So maybe I should learn and pay attention to this. So does that, does that take away from the struggle that people have? No, because what happens is we get into this legalistic mindset and go, I just want to talk about right, what's right and what's wrong. Be careful with that because the conversation will always come back to you. Right? When I point with this finger, guess what happens to the rest of them? Oh, we all know this, right? And if you, if you have any sense at all, you, you want, you, you're, you're careful about judgmentalism, even if you're judgmental, because you know, I'm, that's going to come back on me, right? It's dangerous. Why? Because if you live under the law, the law will get you. It will show you that the law is true, that you cannot do it in your own strength. And that's the purpose of the law. So we live in attention with, okay, because this is why people build doctrine, right? This is helpful to understand. They'll say things like, you know what? Um, I prayed for people, they didn't get healed, therefore, God no longer heals today, right? So it's where this whole doctrine came from. It's like, obviously, God's not doing it because he's not doing it. I tried it, didn't happen, he's not doing it. And my question is, well, maybe you're doing it wrong. My question comes back to me, why aren't you seeing more people healed, right? And the answer is, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Because <laughs> I have to determine whether, first of all, is, is God's truth his truth? Does he really want to heal people? And if the answer is yes, then I have to go down that road and hold on in the tension of the kingdom come. The kingdom is promising something. It's saying we can have things and we're not having them, right? So is the, is it, I mean, there are only a few ways you can understand this. Is it because the devil is so incredibly powerful? I mean, look at what he's doing in the earth. Look at the damage. I mean, look at the tension that our nation is in right now with, with, with uh, another government. Look, we're on the verge of war. I mean, it's, it's, ah, here we are again. We're not handling the tension very well, are we? Why? Why are we doing that? Because we're, we're subjecting ourselves to circumstances telling us who we are 
rather than settling our heart in who God says we are and making a decision about it and being done with it. The decisions you make as a child, once you understand that, okay, is my home a safe place? If it is, then I can rely on that, right? That's why when it goes south, it's so tragic. Is my marriage a safe place? Is this a place where I can disagree, but we always come back together because we're on the same purpose and the same vision? There's always tension. And part of what we have to learn how to do is to learn to navigate in the tension. So as we move forward in 2020, we're gearing up for some things. The Lord's promising some things in our church. He's promising uh, uh, new freedom. He's promising life, more life. He's pro- promising more uh, signs and wonders and miracles, more healings. He's promising greater faith. He's promising more mission that is going to occur and new people coming and our church growing. And, and there's a hundred other things that he's promised us. He's promised you some specific things as well. So how do you get those? How do you walk into that? How do you navigate those things? There was a word that came to our church this is 10 years ago now when we first came here. And uh, we were in the back room praying. I've shared this before, but I'm going to put a picture up here of a, of a chair. And, and the, the prophetic word was really interesting. It, the prophetic word was DCF was, was this chair that had been sitting in, in the yard or the garden for a long, long time. And it was, uh, it was in disrepair. It, the, you could see that the paint, many layers of paint had been peeling. The, the wood had been exposed. And it was beginning to feel the weight of the weather that had come to it. That's a perfect picture of where the church had been. Um, if anybody who heard that word said, yeah, that's absolutely true. That's a per- per- Sometimes that's a perfect picture of where I am personally. I've been worn, I've been rode hard and put up wet to make a cowboy reference, right? We, we understand what that means. And that, that word came and then the, the, the picture changed. It said, but, but the master gardener came from his, from his workshop and he picked up the chair and he took it into the workshop and he put it up on the, on the uh, table and he began to work on it and he began to sand all the old paint away and he got it down to the beautiful natural wood. He tightened up all the, the, you know, the screws. Everything was tight. It was functional again. And then he covers it with this beautiful shellac that, that shows the natural wood, but protects it at the same time. And then he takes the chair when he's finished and he puts it back out in the weather again. That's the promise that God gave us as a church 10 years ago. There's more promises, I'm sure, that were for DCF long before I ever came. Because God's the God of Abraham, Jacob. He's, he's the God of every generation and he keeps going. But here's the picture of where we are now. At some point, God's saying, I made chairs to be useful. I made them to be useful. I want people to be able to sit in them. And when they sit in them, when they come to a place where they can rest, that when they sit down on the chair, it doesn't crumble underneath them. And actually become dangerous because it can puncture their body in the breaking of the chair. And if that's not a picture of the the church world that we've often come to live in, I don't know what is. Broken leaders, people who've, who've, who have done terrible things in, in the name of Jesus. Maybe their heart's not right. Maybe their heart's not right. I don't know. But terrible things have happened. We've all experienced that to some degree. But at some point, what the Lord is crying out for in His people is that we would become the mature body of Christ. That we would create a culture of love. That we create a culture of a place where people on their weary journey can rest can find rest, can find God, and that the thing that they're sitting on will actually support them in the process of finding the rest rather than becoming at at worst or at best a nuisance, at worst a danger to their physical being. God is calling every single one of us to step up and become the men and women of God that He's always called us to do. 
But to do that, you have to get past your crap. (laughs) And stop doing this the wrong way. Stop saying, God, would you take away this? And the Lord's going, no. Well, He never does. I'm doing this the way I want to do it. God never says it that way. But let me just illustrate. God, will you please take away this fear? No. Why, Lord? Because you hate me? No. Because <laughs> you want my, my, my end to be terrible? No. Then why won't you take it away? Because I put it within you. I've done everything that I can do to put it within you to lay the fear down yourself. And until you do that, you will never know you're capable of doing it. And so you will be a perpetual baby and the world needs sons full of the inheritance of God, not babies. The world is a baby just without a nursery. There's no one to care for the people who are in the world who are broken in their sin. At least in the kingdom, if you're broken in your sin and you come to know Jesus and you come into the family of God, You're in a nursery and there are people who will care for you. Help change your nappy. Help mature you. Help grow you up. This is the tension that we live in. So let me just read you a couple of definitions of tension because so often that word is used negatively, right? This is a sense of strain. Situation or condition of hostility, suspense, or uneasiness. Some words around that. Strain, stress, nervousness, pressure, anxiety, unease, apprehension, suspense, restlessness, the jitters, edginess. Any of this ring a bell? Number two, the sense of friction. A situation or condition of hostility, suspense, or uneasiness. Friction, hostility, unease, antagonism, antipathy, enmity, ill feeling. Here's another one. Sense of rigidity, a force that stretches or the state of degree of being stretched tight. Anybody feeling that? Rigidity, tightness, stiffness, pressure, stress, stretching, straining, tautness. And here's something beautiful. God creates tension. Wait, what? That doesn't make sense. Because tension in the worldly sense is almost always negative, right? That's why you avoid it. You ever been in a conversation and it got awkward? Some of you guys never has. Well, it's awkward for everybody else because you're the one who's awkward. That's why you've never experienced that, right? <laughs> Again, those conversations, we had a we had a waiter the other night. We, we, we were having dinner and this guy was doing it all right. Like he had read the manual, obviously, and he had it down to the letter. And this guy was the most awkward human being I think I've ever met as a waiter. And I was like, all of us were like, loosen up, bud. Just It's fine. And he was just like, not even a smile. We did everything we could, and we could not help this young man. We're like, I mean, I gave him a great tip out of pity, right, and, and suffering because I know he's struggling because probably a lot of people are like, that guy's crazy. I'm not leaving him a tip. We're going to help him find a new role in life, right, because he's not. this is not his AC. Let me just be that. Here's my point. Everybody has something like that in their life to some degree. It's awkward, right? It's a tension. Here, here's the thing, though. You see it in everything. You see it in grace and truth. Jesus was both grace and truth. There's a tension in these doctrines. Faith and works. There's a tension. Mercy and judgment. Is a God of God of mercy or a God of judgment? Yes. And if you understand the gospel and, and the sacrifice, then you understand how they, how they hold together in tension. I mentioned before, the kingdom come, the kingdom not yet. What about relationships? Man and woman. <laughs> Right? Husband and wife. If you don't think there's tension there, get married. You'll find out very quick how much tension can occur in that scenario, right? Why? This is God giving, He gives tension 
But he gives it not in the negative sense, but in the positive sense. But if we're not careful, we'll miss it. Iron sharpens iron. Proverbs 27, 17 says this. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. I don't want to be around people who create no tension in my life. I don't want that. Because I need people who are challenging me to grow. Now, some people challenge me to grow because they're broken and they're negative. Some people challenge me to grow because they're incredibly mature and I'm broken and I'm negative in that whatever realm that is. Either way, there's a tension that God not just allows but creates on purpose because in it is growth. But what you and I always do is we almost always avoid tension. And you have to be careful not to do that. So let me just give you an example, an illustration with husbands and wives. We're having a conversation about this not too long ago with somebody. And we're like, you know, Karen and I are similar personalities. And that's not always the same uh, the, the case in marriages. A lot of times you have opposite personalities. And they're like, oh, you know, opposites are uh, opposites attract. Well, Karen and I are very similar in many ways, right? And so that's wonderful and dangerous all at the same time. Because she's strong-willed and it turns out I am too, right? And so it's like, okay, when, when we would dance, I'm, I'd be like, okay, I just need to know who's leading. If you want to lead, that's fine. But we can't both lead in the dance. Otherwise, it's going to be super awkward. She's like, no, no problem. I'll let you lead. And then she would lead. And I was like, okay, we need to talk <laughs> about how this is going to work, right? And then I learned things about, about the way God puts together the reason why he creates a man like a man and a woman like a woman and why we have to be careful with the whole um, defining ourselves by our sexuality mindset. We have to be careful. Why? Because if we're not careful, we're going to miss the intention that God had in how he made us and how he created us. Give me an example. Uh, we had a friend, a little boy, their little boy was climbing on the monkey bars, right, at, at the park, and, and the mom was sitting over there under constant tension and stress that he's going to fall and break his arm. And he's just like, oh, honey, be careful. Oh, honey, be careful. And the little boy is oblivious to mom because he's on the adventure of his life, and the fact that he's risking his life and almost going to die is the whole point of the monkey bars, Right? Because they're not there for safety reasons, which is why a lot of them aren't there anymore. But but he's, <laughs> he's climbing on the monkey bars and she's freaking, oh, oh, honey, you're going to fall and you're going to break your arm. And he and, and the husband, realizing what's happened, just grabs him and pulls, him, pulls her aside, her, the, the mom. He says, honey, you have to stop. And she's like, but, but, uh, but our baby. And he, he said, honey, he's not a baby anymore. Like, don't, he's not a man either, right? <laughs> but he's not a baby anymore. And he's testing himself. He's finding his limits. And, and girls need to do that true. But guys really need to do that. And she said, but what if he falls and breaks his arm? And he said, what if he doesn't and you break his spirit? And she said, hmm, I'm going to take that under advisement and think on that for a season, right? And she changed her approach. She didn't stop being mom. Because that's the reason God put that tenderness and that sense of well-being for her kids. It's not like the dad doesn't have it. He just recognizes it in this boy. He needs to stretch himself. And, and he said, basically, um, falling and breaking his arm would be terrible. But what would be worse is if, he, if he's never able to find the limits to who he is. So let's challenge him to be careful along the way. But here's what happens. The tension between the mom and the tension that, that happens between the mom and the, da the dad offers just enough safety without, with, at the same time, allowing him to, to, to reach and find his limits without tremendous danger. It is the perfect world for a little boy to climb on the monkey bars, right? So there has to be room for boys to be boys. Girls the same way. Like if, if we're not careful, we look, uh, you know, dads, their daughter comes in and says, hey, you know, I'm going out. And your dad's like, not like that, you're not. Go back in there and put some clothes on, right? So in his head, she's wearing a belt. That's all she's got on. You know, it might be 
shorts, but in his head, it's, and so, and so mom comes in, it's like, honey, th- those shorts are not too short. But he's like, I don't know, they seem pretty short, and, and boys will be looking at her, because I know boys, and because I was a boy, and so he goes off in this whole thing, I must protect my daughter from these evil boys, because I know what they're like, because I was one, and she's like, yes, 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 but if you're not careful, she's never going to fa- find a man like you. See the tension. See the tension. It's not bad. And listen, if, if, there, if you find yourself in tension with your wife, stop treating that like it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's the reason God created a, a man and a wife and a husband, and, a husband and wife. Right? But let me say this. There's an Old Testament word that talks about marriage. It's a nautical term, and it, and it literally means opposite and against. And the picture is this. This picture of a rudder, right, and the sails. And the wind, go look, I had to look this up because I didn't, I didn't believe this. I thought the way boats worked, because I, I wasn't around water a lot, was that the wind pushed them from behind. Makes sense, right? Not at all how sailboats work. Sailboats go into the wind. And the way they do that is they capture the wind and it, and it, and it pulls them into the wind because the sails are trimmed one way and the rudder is trimmed opposite and against and it creates a tension and a friction that drives the sailboat forward. You take away the you take away the sails, and the rudder has no job at all. How do you steer a boat that's going nowhere? Right? You take away the the, the rudder, and you're blown every which way. You see the see the way God created. Why is this important? Because to navigate tension, it's not just about the tension. The tension doesn't exist for the sake of itself. It exists for a purpose. God creates tension so that you would find direction that the tension can lead you to. So let me give you an example of this and something that's coming up with our grace teams that are coming up. And our grace teams, we say, I'm going to teach you on this a little bit next week, but grace, the grace gifts that you have, um, gifts like the gift of giving, um, usually people who have the gift of giving also have the ability to make money for some reason. It turns out that those seem to go together. What about the gift of administration, the gift of leadership? Right? Uh, there's just, there's so many of the gifts and we're going to go over them next week. My point is, is that God makes every person in here, He gives you a grace gift. You are the gift. You have to decide what to do with it. But what you find is that you can't, you can't actually do well alone. Even companies know this. You build teams so that you can accomplish the goal or the vision or whatever is driving you to get there. You have to create teams that compensate for you. Maybe you're the strongest set of sales that ever existed in a company. By yourself, you will blow that company all over the place, right? Maybe you're the strongest rudder that has ever existed. You remove all the sails in your company, and you got nowhere to go but down, right? You see the picture. There's this beautiful tension that God creates. And in your gift alone, you are not just not helpful, you're dangerous. So God created us to need each other in the body of Christ and in the world. So one of the challenges I run up against a lot of times, there's a, there's a tension between gifts, the gifts that God has given us, and leadership roles. So this is how, how it happens in church world. This happens oftentimes in, 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 uh, in our role as families, in our, as couples, husbands and wives. Well, let me just give you an example. Um, someone comes in and, and God makes them an elder in the church. It's not an accidental thing. You don't accidentally become an elder. Um, according to Scripture, you're appointed as an elder. Someone recognizes that. That's why you have to be connected to the larger body of Christ. You get appointed an elder for very specific reasons. You meet the, the quality, uh, the character qualifications, first of all. You're a mature, uh, an elder must be these things. We're going to talk about that in the new year. Because it's not an elder being those things. An elder has to start at good character. Start there. 
You can't, you just, if they're not there, don't make them an elder, even if they have the ability to eld, if that's even a word, right? But, but you, what you do is if they have this tension of, okay, so they're, they have the character qualifications, um, through revelation and recognition, we recognize they should be leading in this role. We put them in that role. And then someone in the church is really good at, at administration because God had made them the gift of administration. But in the, the way that God set it up is the, the elders are supposed to lead, not alone, because God, again, puts us in tension. He puts us in a team. So there's tension in the eldership team. There's in our, we're doing a meeting today, a leadership meeting team today, and there will be tension in the room. We set it up that way. We want tension in the room. If we don't have tension in the room, we don't have perspective, and we're not going to hear and, and know where God's calling us to go, and we're definitely not going to get there. So he puts elders in, in a governmental role. Make the decisions. This, hear what the Lord is saying. It Administrate it. Make sure it happens. An administrator comes into the church and they're really good at organizing and making things happen. This is Beth. Beth is incredible at this. That's why we hired her. She's amazing. She put things together. She connects people. Before you know it, you're doing a task. You're like, when did I even agree to this? And you're like, I, I don't know, but Beth said, and so I'm doing it, right? <laughs> you find yourself there. Here's the point. At some point, and Beth and I have talked about this, and she thinks it's the most hilarious thing in the world. But we had to have the conversation. And she like, um, sometimes she tries to lead the church with her gift. I wouldn't have it any other way. I want a powerful administrative gift in, in team with us, right? My wife's incredibly powerful at that. But what we remind her is say, hey, listen, you can't lead the church with your gift. Your gift is in submission to the direction that God's called us to. All of our gifts are. But the role that I've been given as an elder, and we've been given as an eldership team, is to direct the affairs of the church. So we need the administrative gift to help do that. We can't do it without it. But we also can't let that gift take over the leadership role of the church. Why? Because she will administrate us to death. Right? And what kills administrators, drives them nuts, is people come in because they're adjusting the vision all the time. Just about the time you got the form right where we need it, Dave comes in and says, we need to change the form. And I'm like, just keep it open on the, on the book, honey, because we're going to be changing the forms, right? Because we're, we're chasing after the leadership of God. So what does that look like in a, in a husband and a wife situation? What's the role of the father? What's the role of the husband? Scripturally, it is to lead the family, to stand in front, to, to, to take the, the, the challenges of the enemy, to remind the family where we're all going. This is the role of the husband and the father, right? What happens when the husband gives that role away? At some point, it just goes south. Now, I'm not going to get into all that. I've taught on that before, and I promise I'll teach on it again. And some of you guys are like, I don't know if I like where that's going. Good. I like the tension. <laughs> we'll get there because of that. Because probably what you're thinking needs to be pushed back again, pushed back on, because that is probably why you're here. Women should not be taken advantage of. But here's, here's my point behind all this. The only way that works is that the husband gives the wife something to submit to. Right? Wives, submit to your own husbands, not men. I mean, women submit to men. That's not anywhere in the Bible, even though it was culturally true at one point. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Right? And in another place it says, husbands and wives submit to one another. Oh, my Lord. Now there's tension again. Right? Is it submit, husbands submit, I mean, wives submit to husbands, or both of them submit to each other? Yes. The answer is yes. Right? Because there are times when Karen has a greater gifting, a greater calling, and she's better at things because God's gifted her in that. But what I can never not let her do, because I can't stop her from doing anything. She's too powerful. If she wants to do something, I'll just go miss it. That's how that would work with Karen. If she wanted to take over, all right? Just be careful. No, she's, 
she's a Christian. It's okay. So here's why that matters. If I, as a husband, am not submitted myself to Christ, because the Bible says that, that wives submit to husbands, husbands submit to Christ, Christ is submitted to the Father, right? So here's the important thing. If Jesus is submitted to the Father, submission in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's the most biblical thing that you can do, right? Outside of wholeness, outside of health, it's a terrible thing because it makes you vulnerable. But even in the, in the wholeness of it, it will still make you vulnerable, right? Because you're trusting someone else. It's intention, and oftentimes it doesn't go right, which is why in the conversations, this is what it always comes back to based on that scripture. It always comes back to, if you don't have something that you're asking your wife to come underneath the mission of, how can she bring her strength to the mission? So if I don't have a mission as a husband, if I haven't heard from the Lord and as a family we've heard together, and we've clarified it and we both agree that this is the mission that God's called us to, how on earth are we ever going to get there, right? If, if we don't do it properly. And properly means there's a tension between I'm gifted and called and there, there's amazing things in my life as a wife. The husband is gifted and called, but the role he's been given is to lead his family. And if he refuses to do that, if he's passive, what happens so often is the tension overwhelms and the, and the wife begins to lead the family. And even though she can, it's not a, has nothing to do with whether it's the ability or not. Even though she can, it's out of biblical order and it creates chaos. So why am I saying all that? I'm saying all that to just wrap it up with this. There, you have to understand that God put tension in our lives on purpose. He absolutely meant to do it. But you have to learn how to navigate it. And tension exists in the same way that opposite and against exist in a marriage so that you can go towards the destination. And you think, again, you think that the wind is behind you pushing you toward the destination. It is not. The wind is coming at you. You live in a world, you've seen the picture where the one little fish is swimming up against, against the current and all the other fish are swimming the other direction. Welcome to being a Christian in modern day America. It was worse at times, I promise you. We got it really good. You, we just don't realize it. But you are constantly going to be in attention because you live in a broken world and there's a promise of hope and fullness and restoration that, that literally resides within you. So if you don't live in tension, you don't recognize what's going on. Quite honestly, you're going to have tension. You're going to have tension with the people you're trying to reach for Jesus. You're going to have tension raising your kids. You're going to have tension in your marriage. You're going to have, we're going to have tension in church. As we move towards the vision that we are supposed to go to, you guys are going to have to decide as we go, is this something God's called me to as well? Because if he isn't, all you're going to do is be an anchor. You're just going to be dragging behind, yelling at us going, I don't, we don't think, I don't think we should go that direction. Come and talk to the leadership team and say, Hey, this is what I'm feeling. And in tension, maybe that adjusts the direction that we're going. That's the way it's supposed to work, but maybe it doesn't. And then you have to decide, am I supposed to be going along for this ride? And then you have to decide, if I'm supposed to be going the same direction, how am I bringing my strength to this process? And so the tension has to exist so that we can be driven toward the vision that God has given us. So don't avoid tension. Let me close with these three things. Tension brings focus. I talked about this before. What it does is it forces perspective. Husband and wife, it forces perspective. Elders and deacons forces perspective. 
Elders are making governmental decisions. Deacons are going after uh, the care of the people and shepherding. It's not that, that elders don't shepherd and go after the care of and people, but they also are tasked with making the decisions. And sometimes those decisions ruffle feathers. You, people don't want to talk to the people who ruffled the feathers. They want to talk to moms. Like, mom, can you tell dad I, I should really go on this vacation? And like dad and I are talking and we're in agreement. You're not going on the vacation. Oh, okay, that changes everything. But maybe if I can bend my deacon's ear, then maybe he'll talk to the elders and maybe they'll change the direction. We can do that. We can have coffee. We can go, we can go down that road. The whole point is, if, is if we're unhealthy as a leadership team, you shouldn't be here anyway, period. You shouldn't. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm just saying if we're unhealthy, you got, you got to recognize that that's dangerous. But if we're healthy, if the leadership is taking us somewhere, if we're supposed to be going this direction, then what happens is we hold tension towards the vision. What's the vision of DCF? We are transforming lives by encountering grace and the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe in the move of the Holy Spirit, at some point you are going to be surprised, <laughs> right? And maybe a little bit offended. Because we do, and we're going to walk in it. We're going to move forward in it because it's what God's called us to. If you don't understand grace, you think grace is greasy, and you're like, I think this is a bad idea, come and talk to me. Think about that process. That, that may not, this may not be a place that you need to be at. We challenge people when they first come, if you can't agree with 80% of the direction that we're going as a church, then maybe you should think about being in another church. It's not We're not being mean-spirited. We're just recognizing that maybe God's not called you to the same vision that he's called us to. But here's the thing. It doesn't have to be 100%. 80% is plenty. Let me say this. You have to make a decision about whether you're in or not. Because if you choose to walk away, the tension goes away. And we lose the ability to stay on focus and stay headed toward the vision. Tension brings focus. Be okay with the tension. This is a scripture in Hebrews 4.11. And I'll close with this. It says, So we must make every effort to enter that place of rest then no one will be lost by following this example of those who refuse to obey. Remember the picture? Put the picture back up of the chair. This is who God's called us to be. He's called us to be whole and mature. That means we're going to make decisions and we're going to go into the direction that God's called us to. And the way we do that as a church in a leadership role is we're not making this stuff up ourselves. I have lots of ways that I would like to go as a church. I don't get to go. Not because it's not a good way necessarily, because that's not what God's called us to, or it's not, or He's not called us to the season. Finish with this. Ten years ago, I came here, and one of the first things I wanted to start talking about was First Timothy and Titus, and talking about what it means to be a mature believer. And the Lord said, "No." And I was like, "Well, that doesn't even make sense." I mean, half the reason I'm here is to, well, most of the reason is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, and part of that is maturity. So, Lord, why won't you let me? No, I want them to understand grace first. I know, right? Thank God. <laughs> That's the point. We're going, we did. Ten years. Ten years we've been going after building a foundation of grace at DCF. Why? Because we're just going to be a grace church? No. If you don't understand grace, you don't get the gospel. If you can't understand that, everything else in scripture that God challenges us to do is not going to happen. Because when the Lord comes and says, hey, it's time to put away the sin that so easily besets you, I got some things for you to do. It's time to step up, take more responsibility in the kingdom. Some of us, we're, we're avoiding, we're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own, I've got, I've got, I'm busy. Dave, do you know how busy I am? Yeah, I totally don't know because I'm not busy at all. I'm just in leisure. Most of the time, I just play video games on this big screen during the day. Right? I mean, it's so funny when people go, I don't know if you understand my life. I've, I've had your life and I've had harder and I've had better and, and we all have and we get it. 
what we're asking you to do is say, Lord, what is it you are asking of me? I'm, I'm going to challenge you about things, but my perspective is at some point you're going to agree and say, absolutely, I'm fully in, I'm, on, I'm ready to go do some great th- do great things for the kingdom. My question is, can I rely on you? Because I promise you, you can rely on me. I show up every Sunday whether I feel like it or not. I know that cracks some of you guys up. It's like, well, you're supposed to be here. You're the pastor. (laughs) Trust me, there are some days when I feel so bad physically, emotionally. I've been beat up. I've been challenged. The last thing I want to do is get up here and wax eloquent about the grace and the goodness of God. Except for it's true. (laughs) And I had to make a decision a long time ago that my emotions and my circumstances don't get to lead me. And my prayer for you this morning is you would find that same truth because that really is moving into the maturity of God. Every promise that God has made us is valid. The reason those things aren't happening are not because He's withholding. It's because we as the children of God are not coming to the places of maturity where we can actually walk in in those incredibly powerful things. What would begin to happen in our church if we challenge people in maturity and there's no, been no grace, we just turn into one of the most legalistic churches that you've ever encountered. And dear God, we're not going to do that, right? But what would happen also if signs and wonders begin to happen without grace? Somehow you think it's because you prayed so much or you prayed the right way or you said the word, you know, the phrase in Jesus' name just right. <laughs> right? But we get to the place of grace where we are now and we go into this future and the Lord says, I'm promising you signs and wonders. I'm promising you broken people are going to be sent in here. Why? Because I've raised up a people that's ready to take these, these broken, hurting people into their lives, not enable them, not to be overly motherly, also not to drive them to a place where they can't believe there's hope and be overly fatherly, right? But to hold this in perfect tension in the kingdom. And the only way we can do that is to stay alive towards Christ. Reckon reckon myself, the Bible says, dead to sin and alive to Christ. I have to do it on a regular basis. And I know I've gone long this morning. I apologize. You probably won't starve to death. Maybe you will. I don't know. (laughs) It's been an interesting Sunday. Started out with finding out that that, uh, um, someone's friend passed away this morning. And that's what we, we prayed into that this morning and started with that tension. And the first song, you know, hear funny? The first song that the Lord has given me to sing is He's a Good, Good Father. I know. And I don't want to sing that. Because it doesn't feel like that's true when you suffer such incredible loss. Your emotions are crying out. The brokenness, the hurt, the pain is vying for the attention of the promise of the Father. And what we have to do is go, I'm all right with the tension. I'm okay with people freaking out. People are going to freak out. But at some point, I have to come back to center and say, Lord, thank You that even though this is happening, we live in a broken world. You did not do this. As a matter of fact, the hurt and the pain we feel is a tension that will drive us to say, how can we as a people keep that from happening to someone else in our midst again? God caused me to come into maturity and walk in the power that He can only entrust to me as a mature son. The inheritance that He longs to give me 
not to be wasted on my selfish endeavors, to, but to take care of all of my needs and be so much in abundance that I can become generous to every need that's out in front of me. That's the passion that we have in this church, and that's the passion that the Father has for you. Why don't you stand with me? Thank you guys for your patience. I appreciate you holding with me a little past time. I joke about it, but I know there's an expectation, and if we can, we always try to do that. But just thank you this morning for being patient. Do pray for Chris Wash's family uh, with Val and Dave, a uh, good friend of theirs, passed away this morning. Um, he was uh, the ex-husband to Kip Copeland's sister. Some of you guys know Kip and his wife, Eric, and their family. Um, They're really hurting this morning. So I want to end just by praying for them and then praying for us as we go into this decade. Let this decade define us, right? Let us be, let's remember 2020 as the decade that defined maturity and growth and, and the power of God coming in our midst, rescuing people, revival, signs and wonders, Jesus being glorified, pushing back on the hopelessness of the world. Let that be, let that be this decade. Amen. So Jesus, we just say thank you. Holy Spirit, you are the comforter. You don't just comfort. You are the comforter. So Lord, I pray that your presence would be made manifest in this family and the friends and family, uh, extended family. Lord, that you are the comforter. Lord, there is a hope that is eternal, not just in this world. So Lord, be with them as, as they grieve. Be with us as we serve and try to bless this family in every way that we know how to be your hands and feet in this world, to be the kingdom of heaven coming to earth in this scenario. Lord, that's our passion and our prayers. We go into this new year, this new decade is God, raise us up to be the mature sons and daughters that you've called us to be. Lord, let us put away the brokenness, the fear, all the things. Lord, and I know some of that we need help with and you put us in a family, so we're, we're on about it. But Lord, help us to lean into, as Karen said during worship and during the service, Lord, that we would lean into the things of the kingdom, Lord, and push back on the things of the kingdom of darkness. And Lord, you would bring your light to shine, not just in our lives, in our hearts, but in the lives of everyone we touch. Let us be on mission, Jesus. On mission for your purpose and your plan. In your name we pray. Amen. If you had a need this morning, we would love to pray for you. Our ministry team, one of our grace teams, is up here to do that. If not, have a wonderful, wonderful week as you go into the new year.